everyone, and welcome to the Trial Advocacy Podcast, supporting survivors of human trafficking. My name is Summer, and I'm so excited to bring all this amazing and useful information about human trafficking prosecutions to you, alongside my co-host, Taylor. This podcast has been a really important project for both of us and the organizations we represent for about a year now. Um, We're really proud of all of the research, collaboration, and hard work that went into this, and we're also just so grateful for everyone who played a role throughout this process. At the end of the podcast, we'll tell you more about that process and about ourselves, but since we'll be spending some time together before then, I just wanted to start out with a brief introduction of each of us. As I mentioned, my name is Summer. Um, I'm originally from Louisiana. I went to college at Texas Christian University, where I discovered my passion for anti-trafficking work. And now I'm a student at the Florida State University College of Law, and I'll be graduating this spring. FSU College of Law operates a public interest law center. And within that center, we have a project that we call HELP. HELP stands for the Human Trafficking and Exploitation Law Project. I've been a part of that clinic for even longer than we've been working on this project. And throughout that time, the HELP Clinic has really provided me with a variety of experiences to not only further my legal education, but to also improve my advocacy skills. I've been able to work with survivors of human trafficking as a student advocate to speak to the Florida Senate Appropriations Committee as part of HELP's public policy initiatives, draft a petition to the Department of Homeland Security to enforce laws that prohibit the importation of goods produced with forced labor, and to work on this legal toolkit. We really wanted to create this toolkit in a more accessible form and make sure we reach the most amount of people involved in the legal process who may work on a human trafficking case or with a human trafficking victim. And we thought, what better way to do that than through a podcast? This podcast is produced by HELP in collaboration with the Florida Council Against Sexual Violence. Taylor, could you tell us a little bit more about FCASV and your role there? Yes, I would love to. Thank you, Summer. So my name is Taylor Bureau, and I serve as the Director of Strategic Initiatives with the Florida Council Against Sexual Violence. FCAC is a statewide nonprofit organization committed to victims and survivors of sexual violence and the sexual assault programs that serve them. We do this through training, technical assistance, advocacy, and really bridging the gap between services and survivors. I'm so incredibly proud of the work that's being done at FCASV and the work that's being done by all the programs here in Florida as it relates to investing in sane nurses, sexual assault advocates, and also reimagining legal systems and policing. My current role as the Director of Strategic Initiatives is to take what I've learned while working alongside sexually exploited and trafficked youth and use that to build collaborative and trauma-informed responses to sexual violence and human trafficking. And after a year of working on this project with you, Summer, I'm just so excited to finally record this episode and start to share with you all the many rich conversations that we hope to have to increase your capacity to serve survivors of human trafficking. Taylor, it's such an honor not only to work with so many experts throughout this project, who our listeners will get to hear from throughout the podcast, but also with FCASV and you, a truly dynamic and passionate advocate. As I mentioned, Taylor and I are going to be interviewing experts each episode to hit on the truly need-to-know items when working on a human trafficking case or with a human trafficking victim. The speakers that we featured on the podcast come from diverse backgrounds and occupations, so they all have a really unique perspective and expertise to bring to the table. Throughout the podcast, we'll cover key areas such as the law around this topic, what it means to be trauma-informed, why that's important for both the victim and your case, common challenges to these cases, promising solutions to those challenges, the differences between sex and labor trafficking cases, and more. We thought that in order to get the most out of these topics, it was important to establish a really solid understanding of human trafficking, the law about trafficking, and trauma. So we're going to start with a few episodes to lay out that foundation, beginning with our first speaker, Professor Terry Coonan. So first, I want to start by sharing a little bit about Terry with you all uh, and why his voice is so vital when we start talking about human trafficking. So Professor Terry Coonan from the FSU College of Law has been a practicing human rights and immigration attorney for over 25 years. He's also the founding executive director for the Center for Advancement of Human Rights here at Florida State University. Under his direction, the center has done leading work combating human trafficking, providing pro bono legal services to survivors of sex trafficking and labor trafficking. And Professor Terry Coonan has trained prosecutors, judges, law enforcement, and victim advocates nationwide on human trafficking. 
He has worked with the White House, the U.S. Department of Justice, and the U.S. Department of Transportation on anti-trafficking projects. He also served as the lead trainer for the Florida Office of the Attorney General, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, the Florida Department of Health, and the Florida Department of Children and Families. He has testified as a subject expert before the Florida legislator and in the civil sex trafficking suit against Guy Lane Maxwell. He currently serves as the representative of Florida Attorney General Ashley Moody on the Florida Statewide Council Against Human Trafficking. And wow, so you know somebody is really impressive when you have to catch your breath in the middle of their bio. Terry, we are just so excited to have you here. Um, I'm going to pass it back to you in summer. Thanks, Taylor. I'm so excited to see what this project holds, and I hope it can be a useful tool for all professionals working in the legal system who might be involved in a human trafficking case or work with human trafficking victims. As Taylor mentioned, today we're going to focus on understanding what human trafficking is, practically and legally, and there's no better person for helping us with that than Terry Coonan. Professor Coonan, thanks so much for joining us. It's wonderful to be able to work with you again. How are you today? Very good. Thank you very much, Summer. Uh, Happy to be with you, and especially on a great project like this. Well, we appreciate it. I know you're staying busy as always, so we'll go ahead and get started. This is obviously a very complex issue, especially since it isn't necessarily an area of law that most attorneys learn about. Is that correct? Well, it is, and it's new for our judicial system as well. Uh, What's fascinating is that, you know, 30 years ago, we did not have the legal concept of human trafficking. Uh, We've only had that since the year 2000 with what we call the Trafficking Victim Protection Act. And what that addressed, Summer, was uh, really this whole new kind of crime that we saw starting to emerge in the 1990s. Uh, We began to see forms of modern slavery. Uh, That's the terminology that we use. And I do think that that, that's accurate. kinds of exploitation of people for both commercial sex, sex trafficking, but also forced labor, labor trafficking. And it was really in the 1990s that we started to see a number of those cases. We saw huge labor trafficking cases, actually, that were quite well prosecuted by the U.S. Department of Justice. And these were typically labor trafficking cases involving foreign nationals. Uh, What was called the El Monte case out in Los Angeles uh, was a case that involved 70 Thai women that were held in a garment shop, literally held as slaves there for months. And it was the U.S. Department of Labor, it was the U.S. Department of Justice that went in and recognized that this was a forced labor case, uh, people being exploited and unable to walk away from their exploitation. And as we'll see, that's one of the definitions that we have now of human trafficking. It's when someone cannot walk away for whatever reason from either forced commercial sex, sex trafficking, or forced labor, uh, any kind of non-commercial sexual exploitation. Uh, We saw a number of cases here in Florida in the 1990s that were quite well prosecuted, large agricultural exploitation cases, many of them down in the Immokalee area. And that was our impression initially of trafficking, that it involved foreign nationals, whether women and children or oftentimes men in labor trafficking situations. I think it's fair to say, though, and I think all of us in the law field We learned this in law school, and it's true (laughs) even beyond that. The law is typically about 20 years behind the situation on the streets. And this was very much the situation with human trafficking, that we did not have any law, really, that addressed it for what it was, which was a form of modern slavery. And it took until the year 2000. Finally, Congress passed what was called the Trafficking Victim Protection Act. Uh, the TVPA, as we refer to it. And it was a sea change in U.S. law. We finally recognized the types of crimes that were occurring. Uh, Prior to that, if you had trafficked a young girl in for sex trafficking, you could have maybe only gotten a three or four year sentence under federal law. If you trafficked heroin in, you could have gotten a life sentence. So again, the, uh, the disconnect in our laws there became quite clear to to the United States and especially to Congress. So starting in the year 2000, we had the sea change in which we finally defined human trafficking. Uh, What federal law says is that it's in a sense, the use of force, fraud or coercion to exploit someone for either commercial sex, sex trafficking or forced labor, labor trafficking. 
one exemption to that, of course, is children, children that are sex trafficked. Any child encountered in commercial sex is by definition a sex trafficking victim, especially under federal law, increasingly under other state laws as well. So, yeah, that was the, the very, very important initial law that brought it onto our radar screens. It was responding to cases that we had already seen in the 1990s and very, very important for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, it was victim centered. Uh, it addressed the situation of victims. Initially, the assumption was foreign nationals, although we're now seeing that victimization is not at all confined to foreign national human trafficking victims. But what it did, it said that even if people are engaged in something that's illegal, perhaps prostitution, or if they have an Ill, uh, and some, some kind of unlawful status, say, you know, unlawful immigrant status, uh, that can be forgiven in a sense by the law once it's demonstrated that they're victims of crime, the crime of human trafficking. So very, very importantly, it, it moved away, it moved us entirely into new paradigms of what comprises trafficking and who is a trafficking victim. And very importantly, it also provided very important remedies of victims who, foreign national victims who are willing to take part in an investigation and a prosecution, they can be given legal status, lawful immigration status here in the United States, first through what's called a T visa. And then after that, they are qualified for permanent residence. So very important law that that changed 20 years ago. So um, a couple of things. I, I know you mentioned the exemption um, for the requirement of forced fraud and coercion for minors. And I just want to clarify, in federal law, that's only for um, sex trafficking cases, correct? But in Florida, we do have a different law that allows um, a case for labor trafficking for minors without forced fraud and coercion. Is that right? It is, but that's that's a little misleading. Uh, right now, our Florida law is actually pretty weak on that. Uh, coercion was taken out of the statute by the Florida legislature, but they didn't put anything back in to define when is a child who's engaged in any kind of labor under the age of 18 when are they a trafficking victim? And it's actually mistaken to think that any child engaged in work under the age of 18 is a trafficking victim. Uh, statute 450 in our Florida codes actually lay out an entire set of circumstances where minors, children can legally work. Uh, so right now it, it's a gap. We have actually proposed a bill that will hopefully go in front of the legislature this year that will allow for a definition of exploitation in child labor which we lack at this point in time. So, but yeah, there is that difference in federal law. Uh, children who are victims of forced labor still have to demonstrate in federal court cases, at least, that forced fraud or coercion was used against them. Uh, Florida law is in a state of limbo at this point. Uh, that's true of a, quite a few state laws. Uh, we've looked at that nationwide and there's almost no state laws that take into consideration the particular vulnerabilities of trafficking, labor trafficking, that, that children can be exploited for. So it's one of the areas in general where nationwide we're needing to do more legislative work to really begin to capture what's happening out there with the labor exploitation of minors. And so just keeping on this idea of a victim's age and how that can affect your case, um, is it easier to have a case where um, the victim is a minor? Does that fit into the definition better? Um, and if so, how does that affect a prosecution? Sure, that's a great question. And under federal law, uh, where again, someone engaged, say, or who's been victimized in sex trafficking or labor trafficking as an adult, uh, there's a fairly high burden on our prosecutors. They essentially have to show uh, non-consent on the part of a victim. They have to show that either physical force, uh, fraud, fraudulent promises could be a fraudulent promise of a job or of a relationship. We've seen cases where even promises of marriage or of a better job or a better life, those have been used to basically induce people to get into sex trafficking or labor trafficking. Uh, but the third area, what we call coercion, force, fraud, or coercion, that coercion is perhaps the most important addition by the TVPA to our, our federal codes on human trafficking. What it does, it 
allows us finally to use what we call the modern invisible chains of slavery uh, to be brought in, into court cases. Uh, back in 1988, there was a, a pretty significant U.S. Supreme Court case. It was called U.S. versus Kosminski. And what it was was a case that looked at the 13th Amendment and looked at the question, the whole federal code for involuntary servitude, meaning slavery. And it was an interesting case and involved two young men who were being held on a dairy farm in Michigan. And they were exploited by a family, by the Kosminski family, who ultimately was convicted under anti-slavery statutes. Uh, they protested, they appealed it all the way up to the Supreme Court. And what the Supreme Court said at that point was that uh, these two men, the, it's interesting, the case referred to them as mentally retarded men. We would now use the, probably the term uh, developmentally disabled or developmentally challenged, but the Kosminskis had not used physical force to keep them on that dairy farm. Instead, they had used psychological coercion. They had told them that it's a cruel world out there, that road at the end of our farm that leads down to that highway, people could do terrible things to you if you ever went back out there. So they used entirely what we now call the invisible chains of modern slavery, okay? Threats of, of coercion. And in 1988, the Supreme Court said, that does not constitute slavery, all right? It has to be force or the threat of force. And it was that particular case that Congress then legislatively responded to in 2000, said that, no, we're seeing a lot of cases here in the United States of exploitation that don't come down to force or the threat of force. And that was the important change that the Trafficking Victim Protection Act made, that it said, no, psychological coercion as well as fraud can also be used by our federal prosecutors. Uh, since then, we've seen that basically enacted in almost all 50 states now as well. All 50 states finally have anti-trafficking legislation on their books. So uh, it was a process that took close to almost 18 years for states to also kind of be brought up to speed in that area. Uh, most states still have that same format that federal law features, that uh, adult victims of sex trafficking have to prove force, fraud, or coercion, but minors do not. And we use the logic really of statutory rape, that if minors cannot consent to what we would call normal sex, uh, how can they consent to commercial sex? What is it about the exchange of money or something of value that would supposedly give a minor, a 14-year-old, the ability to consent to a commercial sex act? And state legislatures here in Florida and really nationwide are agreeing with that, that they're in the process of decriminalizing prostitution for children, a very, very important. We refer to those as safe harbor laws. Uh, here in Florida, we got it in two phases. Back in 2012, we had an initial safe harbor law that at that point said that it's the strong preference of the state of Florida that children found to be engaged in commercial sex be put into the dependency world, the world of the Department of Children and Families, not the DJJ world, not the delinquency world. Uh, in 2012, we didn't actually give law enforcement very appropriate guidance on when, if ever, might it be appropriate to arrest a child for prostitution. In 2016, we came back and clarified, under no circumstances should a child ever be charged with prostitution. So very important, we call those safe harbor laws and over 30 states now have those nationwide. So state laws are reflecting really that same kind of federal exemption for minors. Well, so we're talking about how the law is changing based off of these new understandings, what what we're really seeing out there. Um, but I know that one issue that we still face is the the issue of the iconic victim. Obviously, this is a very intricate issue. We could probably have a whole podcast episode to talk about it. But can you just tell us what the iconic victim is and how that still plays a role when we're prosecuting human trafficking cases? Certainly. Um, when I start out trainings that I do for law enforcement, especially on human trafficking, I always ask them, 
How many of you have seen the movie Taken with Liam Neeson? And of course, everyone has. And I have to tell them, forget everything that you learned about human trafficking from Liam Neeson and the movie Taken. Uh, it's not about the dangers of sending our daughters to France for the summer. No, it's actually about what we call non-iconic victims. Um, initially, we always thought women and children, vulnerable women and children, usually the image of an iconic victim meant a foreign national woman or child that was in sex trafficking and that was rescued by law enforcement and grateful to be rescued and that who would then be happy to be a victim witness in a case. Uh, that's the classic example. And it's, it's a stereotype, of course, of what is a human trafficking victim. What we're now understanding is that they're not all foreign national women and children. There are men who are routinely subjected to labor trafficking, but sex trafficking as well. Uh, we've learned since then that really the largest group of sex trafficking victims are our own U.S. citizen daughters, all right? There are uh, what we call domestic minor sex trafficking, referred to as DMST. It's U.S. citizen children, uh, oftentimes chronic runaways, uh, but increasingly we're also seeing what we call community kids, children that are not in our dependency system, but are still living at home with a caregiver, but may be exploited for sex trafficking in particular. So we're understanding that this iconic victim notion uh, is not one that holds up and that our, our, our good savvy law enforcement and prosecutors, they understand that. But initially there was still always a preference, maybe a subconscious one for, again, that vulnerable victim who's immediately grateful to be rescued and who of course is a completely uh, willing and enthusiastic victim witness. Uh, we're now understanding that a lot of our trafficking victims, our young survivors do not fit that stereotype. Uh, many of them are not grateful to be rescued, quote unquote. Uh, many of them see themselves as being in a relationship with their own sex trafficker. Uh, again, a trauma bond. I know you'll have specialists that will talk about that. But that again, we would call it colloquially the, the, the Patty Hearst syndrome or Stockholm syndrome, where they are basically in a, a trauma bond with their very exploiter and oftentimes they do not want to testify. Oftentimes they actually want to run right back to that trafficker. So that we have to understand that both in the law enforcement and the prosecutorial world, but very importantly in the victim services world as well, that uh, we should not have iconic victim expectations, uh, either for who our victims are or for how they will interact with us as professionals, as whether that means lawyers, attorneys, uh, or victim service providers. And I know that that stereotype, um, you know, that's part of the public image. Like you said, the movie Taken um, has portrayed this this different image of trafficking. And so we have a general public image of what human trafficking is, like you said, generally sex trafficking um, and and often ignores the coercive aspects of it. Um, so how does that affect a trial when it comes to juries? How can a prosecutor, um, you know, make sure they're overcoming this public expectation of what they're getting in a human trafficking case? Well, a number of things prosecutors need to be aware of. They, first of all, will have to explain trauma to a jury. Increasingly, that's become one of the most important things that a prosecutor does. And they are doing that, often using uh, expert witnesses to explain, here is how trauma could impact someone. Uh, again, neurologists, social workers, therapists, we have new information that we didn't 20 years ago about how the brain operates so that I know you have a session that will address just that as part of this podcast series, but very, very important for for prosecutors to understand that. A number of things prosecutors have to dispel jury uh, false assumptions about trafficking. Uh, for foreign nationals, uh, you may have to dispel the, the, the implicit sort of sense that some jury members have that, well, it's actually just as bad in a foreign country as it is here. So that why would we prosecute somebody for sex trafficking or labor trafficking? That victim, you know, they should have expected as much or what they're fleeing uh, was just as bad. So we, we have to basically work with juries on that concept. We have to work with juries, too, about what their own concepts of an iconic victim is. Uh, very importantly, U.S. federal law has said that even someone who willingly entered into prostitution at some point in their lives, 
they can subsequently still be a sex trafficking victim. Once their consent is taken away, that means that they've become a victim. A number of the cases that I've worked here have involved foreign national women as well as U.S. citizen women that initially may have moved into that world of prostitution willingly. Uh, Even as adults, they may have done so willingly. Uh, In legal terms, they gave their consent to it, but that ultimately their free will was overborne, that they ultimately were coerced into it. And very important federal legal precedent says that, yes, that is sex trafficking. That cannot be a defense that a woman initially, or a man for that matter, initially entered into the world of prostitution. So very important that our juries understand that. Very important that our juries understand too that Many times a victim witness will not want to testify. And it's important to understand that, that for foreign nationals, it means that they could fear for their their children, their mothers, their fathers, their sisters back at home in the home country. They may not want to testify. It's important for us to understand, too, that the federal as well as our state laws, uh, to a certain degree, we talk about them as victim centered, but the victim benefits that they provide are only given to victims that typically are willing to assist in a law enforcement investigation or prosecution. It's, I think, far more honest to characterize them as prosecutorial law. It gives prosecutors something to hold out to a victim in terms of, okay, you know, if you can testify, you can ultimately qualify for certain benefits under U.S. law. Um, Prosecutors may have to explain, though, that that's not quid pro quo. Our our victim witnesses are not being given benefits in exchange for their testimony. Uh, That's why uh, the TV, so things like that, you apply for long after uh, a human trafficking prosecution is already over with. Uh, So, yeah, a number of things that I think our good prosecutors do dispel and, and need to dispel, especially in front of juries. And something you mentioned, we're going to talk about this um, in a future episode where we talk about how trauma can affect the legal process, but just wanted to touch on it. Um, This, you know, somewhat of an exchange of these benefits in exchange for the willingness to comply with law enforcement, with the prosecution. um, What are some of the the downsides of that? Um, How can that, you know, negatively affect a prosecution or a victim? Well, defense attorneys nationwide, one of their first questions for a victim witness on the stand is, are you getting benefits in exchange for your testimony? A number of the victims that I've worked with, the very first question that a defense attorney had for them, one of them actually started out his questioning saying to uh, this young woman, those are very nice clothes that you're wearing today. And then his next question was, did the prosecutor buy those for you in exchange for your testimony? Uh, This is clearly what is often suggested. And it is the reason also that prosecutors, law enforcement in general, should never make promises about any kinds of benefits. That's for service providers. That's for pro bono attorneys like myself, uh, or it can be also uh, victim advocates. It's those are the people that would appropriately work with a trafficking victim on securing benefits uh, such as they are, whether that's a T visa, uh, it could be a lot of states like Florida have relocation benefits for our victims. Uh, at least under federal law, victims are allowed to seek civil damages. That's a very important tool that victims are given, and that's not for prosecutors to do. And very important to basically create that very, very uh, important kind of uh, yellow line in the sand, as it were, to say that, no, uh, prosecutors do not trade uh, the promise of benefits. Uh, In general, prosecutors and law enforcement should never make promises of any sort to to a victim. Uh, Victims have typically been lied to repeatedly throughout their lives, and it sets that prosecutor or that law enforcement up for failure. Uh, when they make any kind of promise. So very important. And we'll talk about this. I think you will later too. the collaborative roles that go into the anti-trafficking movement. Uh, Very, very important that it's for victim service providers to work and uh, allow our victims to access uh, the the benefits such as they are under either state or federal law. But prosecutors should, should never, of course, move in that direction. Thanks. And so we've talked a lot about victims um, 
who victims are um, and, you know, the definitions of victims. But I also want to talk about traffickers and who, by definition, traffickers are. Um, and if there are any, you know, practical realities that you think are relevant, can we talk about those as well? Absolutely. Well, you know, the first thing we also have to do is kind of shed any kind of presumptions we have about who are sex traffickers. Uh, sex traffickers, in addition to again, uh, low level thugs, uh, you know, all over the country, uh, they are all races, all nationalities, uh, both male and female. Some of the worst sex traffickers I've seen in 20 years of this work are females. Uh, the very, very first case that our Human Rights Center at Florida State University uh, became engaged in involved a 72-year-old grandmother from Mexico, Luisa Cadena, who was the criminal mastermind in a case that ultimately induced over 300 young women uh, to come to Florida to be smuggled in illegally uh, and then to be exploited for commercial sex here. And it was a criminal scheme dreamed up and operated by this grandmother. Um, we're seeing, uh, of course, uh, men and women of all ages. Uh, oftentimes, it is a pimp who can be almost a peer. Uh, we've seen traffickers who are male exploiting male victims, uh, again, moving beyond the iconic victim notion, but also any iconic notions that we would have of, of who a trafficker is. Uh, some of the most complex situations of traffickers involve a trafficker who's both an exploiter and someone who perhaps was exploited previously, him or herself. Uh, in street parlance, they'd call the they'd, they'd be called the bottom or the bottom bitch. But that uh, increasingly, judges and prosecutors are having to take a close look at their cases, understanding that, especially for a bottom who may be over the age of eighteen, but who may herself have been brought into that world of sex trafficking as a minor. Uh, bottoms are typically victims who have worked their way up in the hierarchy of a pimp stable so that uh, good judges in particular are rethinking how they would sentence uh, a bottom or someone who is both an exploiter, but who at some point was a victim as well. Oftentimes community service rather than a prison sentence, uh, as well as restitution towards whatever victims uh, he or she may have victimized. So yeah, it's one of those areas where uh, good prosecutors and, and good judges are trying to think through what's the appropriate way of, to, to deal with, with people like that. But in general, we should have no stereotypes whatsoever about who traffickers are. And to convict a trafficker, to convict someone of human trafficking, um, we've talked about how you need force, fraud, or coercion, except in certain circumstances. Um, you, we need sexual exploitation or um, forced labor. But are there any other elements that you need to convict someone of human trafficking? Now, under federal law, there's an interstate commerce requirement. It's actually quite easily met. Um, if a sex trafficker or a labor trafficker used any means of communication, it could be internet, it could be cell phone, uh, did they cross a state line? Did anything that they used in the course of that trafficking cross the state line? Turns out it's not a major, major obstacle in, in prosecuting cases. One thing that prosecutors should be aware of though, especially state prosecutors, increasingly uh, quite a few of our states have very good definitions of what constitutes coercion. Uh, here in Florida, we have very good statutes on that, both under our, our statute that deals with human trafficking, but also a separate statute that involves coercion for prostitution. And what these lay out are multiple different scenarios. Someone that is exploited for drugs or alcohol, when it's a substance abuse that could be exploited. Uh, someone who is uh, essentially coerced through the use of social media or threats to harm their reputation. Uh, it could be taking away a child of theirs. It could be threatening them with, uh, again, child welfare uh, kinds of violations that you'll be reported to the child welfare agency if you don't do this. Uh, a host of different ways, including exploiting people's basic needs for uh, food, safety, shelter, or affection. So very, very worthwhile for our prosecutors to look within your own state statutes on what constitutes coercion, because our state statutes are quite good on that. They even go beyond our federal statutes in laying out individual instances of what coercion might constitute. So uh, another very important part of state law for our state prosecutors to think about. 
And so something that we talked about in some of the assessments we did to prepare for the podcast was um, what to do if one of these elements is missing. Um, are there other types of charges that we can prosecute to to still be able to, you know, keep this trafficker away from a victim? That's, you know, the main, the primary um, immediate goal. And what are those charges? Sure. And very important to understand that human trafficking just represents probably the most severe kind of criminal offense on a whole spectrum of criminal offenses. Um, important to understand that, first of all, uh, our trafficking statutes, both state and federal, describe what we call a segmented crime so that it's not just the end result of exploiting someone for forced labor or forced commercial sex, but it could be recruiting transporting. It could be exchanging. Uh, it could be any kind of re receiving of benefits that one knowingly gets. Uh, we can see, we have seen Uber drivers convicted of this. We have seen doctors. We have seen all kinds of people who weren't the pimp, but being convicted of sex trafficking or labor trafficking when they knowingly benefited from uh, an offense like that. So first of all, very important to understand, it's a whole series of offenses that can go into human trafficking. But even if it does not reach that, at times fairly high level of showing that forced fraud or coercion has been used for sex trafficking or for labor trafficking, it can still be wage and hour violations. And when I think of labor trafficking, it is almost always theft of benefits if it involves exploitation of a U.S. citizen. Uh, we're seeing a whole host of new cases nationwide where the vulnerability exploited uh, is actually a uh, a person who, again, might be mentally challenged. Again, the Kosminski case would have called them mentally retarded. But no, it's now victims being exploited, sadly, oftentimes by a relative or a third party for their benefits. And that is one of the areas where theft of benefits is a very important charge for our prosecutors to think about. Uh, when it comes to sex trafficking, of course, there's a whole set of statutes, uh, sex abuse, uh, prostitution charges, if, if nothing else. Uh, we do encourage prosecutors, obviously, to charge up, start with those heaviest charges. Uh, one of the things I've come to understand a little better in my own role as an advocate is the importance of plea deals. Uh, initially, I, I found myself opposed to those because I thought, oh, sex traffickers who've committed really egregious crimes, or labor traffickers for that matter, are pleading down to lesser charges. I now, though, as a victim advocate, having worked with victims for close to 20 years now, I understand the logic of that, that especially if it means that a victim may not have to testify against their prosecutor or against their trafficker, uh, that can be very, very important. Uh, it's so traumatizing for a lot of our survivors to have to undergo cross-examination that many of them, for any number of reasons, whether it's fear, fear for their own safety, for the safety of loved ones, or it may just be a trauma bond with that trafficker. For any number of reasons, they may not want to testify and may not want to be subjected to cross-examination, which can be quite traumatizing. I mean, it's a, it's a classic example of re-victimization. So oftentimes to spare our victims that ordeal, it makes sense to accept a plea deal. So I now feel quite differently than I did say 20 years ago, uh, just as I've seen the experience of more victims in that kind of particular area. But no, there's a whole host of labor traffic, uh, essentially wage an hour or labor violations that, that can and should be explored, and a whole host of other violations that involve sexual assault, sexual abuse, that can also very appropriately be used in these situations. Thank you. And before we let you go, I wanted to ask if you could just update us on what's happening now with some of the current trends statewide and nationwide. Sure. Well, I think in terms of current trends that we should all know about, the first is the use of social media and online communications for both the recruiting and for the exploitation of the coercion of victims. Uh, a year or two back, I was asked to serve as a subject matter expert, an expert witness in a trial. And it involved a case where a pimp had to explain as part of a plea deal how he had been able to access several hundred girls in a quite affluent high school. And uh, it, it was interesting to me. First of all, he showed no remorse at all. He stood up in front of this judge and jury and almost laughed and said, well, 
It was Facebook. He says, I found one young woman who was venting against her mother, angry about something her mother had said or done. And I sent her a friend request. She said, uh, it was, of course, a false profile, but uh, within seconds, she had friended me. I then had access to her entire friends list, and I sent them friends requests. Uh, I began chatting with all of them. Uh, chatting led to sexting. I was able to persuade them to send me sexually explicit photos. I was amazed at how many did it without thinking. I sent false pictures of myself back as well. And suddenly, I had coercion. I could basically then require those young women to do certain things for me, or I would put those pictures up online. Uh, so it was curious that this pimp, uh, and again, quite in a quite revealing disclosure, noted how it was social media and online communications that were both the source of the recruiting, but also of the coercion. Uh, that's a really important trend. The other trend that we're sadly seeing is that a great many of our cases, they may involve organized crime, they may involve uh, MS-13, they may involve pimps, bloods. We've seen countless cases where U.S. gangs are taking this up. It's because sex trafficking in particular is quite lucrative, that you can reuse victims. Uh, victims become a reusable commodity. Uh, but what we're also seeing, and this is the disturbing trend now, is that in so many cases, whether here in Florida or nationwide, it is a local thug in a local neighborhood who basically exploits local miners and that the Johns, the clients are local men in that neighborhood. It does not involve organized crime. It doesn't involve a gang. It is a local thug with local victims. And uh, again, a reminder that for our, our law enforcement that are involved in community policing in particular, a really important trend to pick up on. Uh, also, the other trend we're seeing, a great many of our drug dealers are becoming sex traffickers. That uh, we've seen this in cases here in North Florida and throughout Florida, but nationwide as well. Uh, the person that starts as the provider of drugs to that young person ultimately coerces them and says, in order for you to get more drugs, here's what you have to do. And, and suddenly that victim who in a sense began by purchasing their product from that drug dealer has suddenly become the product for that dealer who really is a sex trafficker. Uh, the final trend that I think would be imp really important for our prosecutors to be aware of, and it started under federal law, but it is now the case in all, in many states, uh, sex traffickers include Johns, that it's not just pimps, but that clients of sex trafficking cases who knowingly uh, are involved in cases that involve someone who is a victim, uh, or if it is someone who patronized a minor, they are sex traffickers and appropriately should be prosecuted that way. Uh, very important for that understanding. It started with what was called the Youngers case. It was a, a, a case out of the Midwest that under federal law established that concept. And that has now been enacted into federal law and increasingly in state laws here in Florida and nationwide as well. So very appropriately, we're looking at the demand side that the people that provide the demand in particular for sex trafficking are also considered sex traffickers. Uh, a last final note, uh, maybe just uh, kind of a, a recommendation for our prosecutors, be aware of labor trafficking, that we're seeing fewer cases being prosecuted, but we know that it hides in plain sight. It hides in any number of industries that involve a subcontractor. Uh, it's a subcontractor who comes to a major hotel chain or an agribusiness and says, basically, I have a work crew that can pick your oranges or your tomatoes 80% cheaper than other subcontractors are, or going to a major quite legitimate hotel brand and saying, you know, I have a group of subcontractors, women that can come in and make your beds. And, oh, my my bid, it's 80% lower than what other subcontractors are offering you. Uh, increasingly, if a bid looks too good to be true, it is, and it involves human trafficking. So very important for our law enforcement and our, our prosecutors to be thinking about that. And Again, it's infesting a host of our different industries because so many industries right now utilize subcontracting in the United States. So it is, I think, the, the new frontier for both law enforcement and prosecutors to uh, get at labor trafficking. And some of it is on us as people that are 
the ones that assist in drafting state laws. We're trying to get better state laws, for instance, here in Florida, that recognize the particular vulnerabilities that children have uh, that labor traffickers can exploit. So we're trying to incorporate um, actually a concept out of international law that says that trafficking isn't just force, fraud, or coercion, for but also an exploitation of either a position of power and authority or an exploitation of a vulnerability. So we're trying to enact laws that especially will bring that into our labor trafficking statutes as well. Yeah, and we're looking forward to talking to Daniela Donoso, an FSU law graduate, a little more about labor trafficking in a future podcast episode. Um, so hopefully everyone is looking out for that. One last question. Um, and it might be too soon to know this, but we are in the middle of a global pandemic and um, surely that will have an effect on human trafficking. And so I guess I just wanted to ask, do we know what that effect will be in the longevity of the effect if there is one? Well, I think immediately, and it's this is not a quantitative analysis on my part, I'm, I'm, I don't do quantitative analysis, but when you just think of how much more the world has moved online, that traffickers have moved online. Um, we're seeing online gaming systems now being infiltrated by traffickers that, yeah, it's social media and yes, it's online communications. But, you know, as a parent, do we know who our child is in contact with when they're engaged in online gaming? I think the, the movement towards online instruction, online communications. I mean, we've seen an exponential increase in that since COVID. And that's something I think for all of us to be aware of. I think our statistics, whether it's, again, from our child welfare agencies, you know, our helplines, our reporting lines, uh, they're just slowly starting to capture that. We haven't seen a huge spike in numbers, but it does go to figure that with the amount of ch time that children especially are spending online, uh, we can expect to see an increase also in online recruiting and coercion. Thank you. I know, Taylor, you had a few questions that you wanted to ask. Yes, thank you. So um, at the end of each episode, we're going to ask two questions to everybody um, to get just a, a kind of feel and wrap up the, the episode. But before I ask, I just wanted to say that um, I loved listening to everything you had to say. You are such a wealth of knowledge. So I just really appreciate you. <laughs> um, so, Happy. Uh, it's, it's a community effort, as you know, Taylor. And uh, it's that collaborative sense of relationships in the anti-trafficking field. So absolutely important. Absolutely. We, we all balance each other for this one goal. I love it. Um, so the first question is, if you could give one piece of advice to prosecutors who are prosecuting a trafficking case, what would that be? Well, in some ways, it's to understand the role that we as advocates and particularly legal advocates have, that uh, that collaborative relationship that's at the very heart of the U.S. anti-trafficking response. It involves people staying in their own lanes in, in certain ways so that, you know, for instance, I as a victim advocate, uh, my legal duty of care is to the victim. I fully understand that in a sense, the legal duty of the prosecutor is to secure a prosecution. Now, in 80% of that case, our legal duties of care will coincide, but that there may come a point where I have to think about the well-being of the victim and that the good prosecutors understand that in the same way that I understand that, you know, it's not my role to demand information from a prosecutor or from law enforcement. I get information on a need-to-know basis, and good service providers understand that, just like good prosecutors and law enforcement understand that, okay, these are complementary roles, and that at the end of the day, it's about securing justice for our victims, uh, but that our victims will also have other needs. Very important, too, that every victim have their own counsel, legal counsel, that uh, we should not think of the prosecutor as the victim's lawyer, all right? Uh, they can do a really important things for, for victims and a really good open relationship is so crucial between a good prosecutor and a, a victim, a survivor. But that uh, I think the other lesson learned is that victims need access to their own private attorney. And that could be an immigration attorney, for a foreign national victim, it could be an attorney that's well-versed in, say, criminal law. That U.S. citizen victim may need help expungements. Uh, again, Florida and quite a few states allow for any conviction that a victim may have gotten 
in a crime that was related to their trafficking exploitation. It could be for theft, prostitution. It could be for anything. If it was in the course of their trafficking, that can be expunged. So it will take a really good attorney that will do that kind of work for them on the criminal side. So again, every survivor, every victim will need legal assistance that moves beyond the the parameters of the prosecutor. And that's where it's collaborative, even for those of us in the legal profession. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I've I've noticed that in in trafficking. Sometimes everybody wants to be the chief, but we all need to kind of know uh, what little piece of the puzzle we fill. So thank you for saying that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then the next question, you know, this work can be really heavy. Um, it can uh, pull on your heart a lot and be exhausting. And so um, knowing that we have to continue doing this work and, and bring our best selves each day, um, what do you do when this work starts to feel a little too heavy? How do you take care of yourself? Well, I think this is true for many of us in victim advocacy fields of, of different sorts. It's true also law enforcement has to watch out for the kind of burnout that they'll experience. But uh, you have to have a life apart from your work. That's that is a given, uh, whether that means running yoga, working out or just taking time away. Really important. Uh, I think for those of us on the victim advocate side, though, we're we're privileged in the sense that we get to see the victim recover. We get to see the way the resilience that that survivors have. And some of my law enforcement friends and my prosecutor friends, they don't always have access to that because they'll work the case in say the eight to 12 months that it takes, but they then don't get to see the incredible resilience that so many of our, our victims have. Um, for those of us on the victim advocacy side, we work the case not just during the criminal investigation, but for the next 20 years while we're also accompanying that survivor and working with them in a, in a host of situations. We get to see them uh, re-enter the educational system, get jobs. We get to see them rediscover healthy relationships, get married, have children. Uh, we get to see them reclaim their lives. And that's the other thing that I think gives us hope. And that, again, it's a, it's a form of, of sustenance for those of us that are on that side of the anti-trafficking field. So yeah, I think it's really important. And that's true of us uh, in the work that I also do with survivors of torture or asylum seekers. We get to see people rebuild their lives. And that is the reason we stay in it. The reason puts fire in our belly every morning when we wake up. Absolutely. What a great point too. Like we don't always get to see them having success, but those kids that we see move past or those adults we see move past and create their own lives, it is just fuel for the next day. So absolutely great point. Yeah, it totally makes it worth it. Makes everything worth it whenever you have, you know, even if it's just one, it fuels you for the rest of the rest of the work. Um well what a great way to kick off the podcast. It has been such a pleasure learning from you, as always, Professor Kunin. Um, it's truly an honor to have an expert help us start this project to help educate legal professionals on human trafficking and working with victims of human trafficking. Um, thank you for your time today. Well, thank you. And thanks for the opportunity uh, for legal professionals have such a crucial role to play in a host of different uh, capacities in the anti-trafficking world. So thank you for uh, pulling that all together for us. Yeah, we are we're really excited about what this project will bring. And now that we know what it looks like, what we need to prosecute traffickers, we will dive into um, what this process looks like. We'll see you guys next week when we talk to Mimi Graham and Jill Little about the key to understanding trafficking cases, which, of course, is understanding trauma. Thanks um, and stay well. Thank you very much. Bye bye now. Bye. Bye.